Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Crypto Business Podcast, helping you navigate the frontier of crypto. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Crypto Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Mitch Jackson, and we're going to explore Web3 Legal. Yes, you heard me right. There are legal things you need to be thinking about before you start your next NFT project or any other project in the world of Web3. And Mitch is going to bring his legal advice to the table. And you're going to hear all sorts of fascinating things that maybe you haven't considered until now. So I think you're going to find this super, super valuable. By the way, I am at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. Also, if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. And now for this week's interview with Mitch Jackson. Helping you to simplify your crypto journey. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Mitch Jackson. If you don't know who Mitch is, he's an award-winning attorney, consultant, and speaker. His clients include Tech, Metaverse, and Web3 clients, and he's the co-author of the Metaverse Handbook, Mitch, how you doing today? Mike, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. It's always good to see you. Likewise. So today, what we're going to talk about is law and Web3. And you being a trial attorney and having such a background, our paths have crossed paths before in the social marketing world. And I'm really excited to kind of dig in a little bit on your story. So before we get into the law side of things, I would love to understand how in the world did you get into Web3 and crypto if you want to. Start wherever you want to start. Let's hear that story. What a fun time to be alive, right? It's fascinating right now. There's so much going on. And so for me, Mike, it takes me back to growing up on a ranch in Tucson, Arizona. I watched my mom and dad entertain guests for 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, and they always created a unique, memorable, and entertaining experience for the guests. That's what kept the guests coming back. I was the first one from my family to, to go to college, uh, much less go to law school. And when I moved out here to Southern California, Mike, this is where you live. There's a lot of competition out here. And I realized just getting good settlements and good verdicts wasn't enough. I needed to bring more to the table. And so what I started doing back in the mid to late 80s was starting a local motocross riding club for all the lawyers and judges in town that love to enjoy riding motocross over on Lake Elsinore and all the other tracks in Southern California. And I noticed immediately it allowed me to connect with a whole new audience, a whole new referral base, and a group of people that I just really enjoyed hanging with. Fast forward to the internet, social media, live video, social audio, what we're doing today with Web3, it's the same Thing. That's what led me here. It led me to a place where I could be myself. I could connect with other people that I shared similar interests with. It allowed me to build a unique brand for my firm that other lawyers weren't doing. And from a legal perspective, Mike, we're seeing more legal issues and challenges and opportunities right now in the Web3 space 
than I've seen in 35 years of practicing law or 40 years of being an entrepreneur. This is where you want to be if you're in business, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a lawyer. And I think if you like doing things new, if you want to create that kind of brand that other people haven't even thought about, especially if you're a professional, if you're a lawyer, a doctor, or an accountant, this is the sandbox you want to play in. So for all of those reasons, I dived headfirst into Web3, haven't looked back. And the fun thing is, Mike, is we're just getting started. And that's what makes it so exciting. So you've been an attorney for 35 years. Is that correct? 35 years. Okay. So you and I were around before, you know, the internet was really a thing and before social marketing was really a thing. And now web three is a thing. At what point did the light bulb go off in your head that you, Mitch Jackson, ought to kind of zoom in a little bit on this new emerging space, web three tokens, all this kind of stuff. There must've been some defining moment where you decided you're going to pay attention, right? There were several. The defining moments were the phone calls we were getting, the uh, emails in our inbox, the direct messages on social media with new opportunities surrounding this web three type of concept. Mitch, have you heard of blockchains? Do you know what smart contracts are? There's this thing called a non-fungible token. I want to incorporate it into my business. I see people talking about NFTs, you know, on Twitter spaces or this crazy place called Discord. What do I need to do as a business owner to protect myself, to embrace the power of NFTs, to, to use NFTs properly, to follow the rules, the regulations, and the guidelines, local, state, and federal laws moving forward? One of the advantages, Mike, of being an attorney, what your community sees on little platforms advertisements, content that's being put out there. We're usually seeing this stuff six months to 12 months before it ever goes public. We're the ones having conversations with business owners about all the different legal things that we're going to dive into today. What we're seeing happen right now, what you saw in New York is the accumulation of all of these conversations of the adaptation of the legal principles applied to new Web3 technologies. And then you see companies doing it right, rolling these technologies out to service their clients and customers to create better client experiences and new business opportunities. So for all of those reasons, opportunity, excitement, getting an early peak a couple of years ago at some of the issues that people were struggling with, whether it was in uh, digital currency or what we now think of decentralized Web3 spaces, all of these things were of interest to me. I could tell with my finger on the pulse, this is what was of interest to leaders in, in industry, to clients that I represent all over the country. And if it's of interest to them, and I respect their thoughts and opinion, it's of interest to me. So we dived headfirst into, and I didn't even know if it was the shallow end, Mike, or the deep end of the swimming pool, the Web3 swimming pool, but we've been uh, treading water ever since. I've been keeping my head above the waterline, breathing when I can. And there's just so much happening so fast. I'm hoping today we can share some tips to help keep your community safe moving forward in the Web3 space. Well, you know, it's fascinating because, um, you know, I come from the marketing world and I know you were very active, you know, in the same communities that I was active in. And I've seen so many people from that world, the world of marketing and social marketing and internet marketing moving into Web3. And I'm wondering if part of it is because those of us that are a little bit gray haired, uh, they've been around for a while, kind of missed out maybe a little bit on some of these early opportunities when the internet became popular or missed out or were a little late to the table on the social marketing side of things. But we see the pattern and we see this web three thing is going to be huge, potentially bigger than all those things combined. And I'm wondering if 
that's part of what's at play here because, you know, if you think about like Gary Vaynerchuk, what he did with VFriends or the Board Ape Yacht Club, both of those projects are less than two years old, you know, and those are two of the projects that many people in the world of NFTs and DAOs and all that stuff are talking about. They're not even two years old, Mitch. I mean, like we are just so early and because we're early, I would imagine people are quote unquote aping in as they refer to it. They're moving really fast and they're not thinking about some of the things that you are often hired to think about. So what I would love to hear from your perspective is for marketers or project founders, why do they need to focus on the legal stuff? Because it seems at first blush, this is the wild, wild west. Law doesn't seem to apply, but I know you're an attorney, so tell them why they need to pay attention, you know? So that last comment, Mike, the law does apply, right? Whether yes. we're in old tombstone or any place else. And that's what people are starting to realize right now. When we look at the news, when we look at indictments coming down, we, when we look at wrongdoers being held accountable for the wrongful conduct, this is real life, serious business, real things. And, and that's a good thing, right? The glass is half full. To go back to the beginning of your question, I think What's happening is those of us that have been around the block once or twice have a few gray hairs. We've been in business for for a couple of decades. What we see happening is a new technology in the Web3 space that's changing everything. I've been on record saying I think Web3 is going to change business, society, and how we interact around the world more so than the printing press, which was invented, depending on who you listen to, back in the 1400s. This is a really big thing. It's a really big deal. And so what's important is everybody understand, even though you may not feel like you're new to the table right now in the Web3 world, we're just getting started. Both Gary, you mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk, both he and I were on record in 2021 last year with tweets. Mine was October 15th, stating, in my opinion, based upon the conversations I'm having, the legal challenges that are being brought to my attention as a lawyer, what I'm seeing mutual friends of us of ours do What I see happening is 98% of the NFTs that most of you know about right now are going to fail and they're going to go up in smoke, okay? Those other 2% are going to change the world. And when I say NFTs, I'm talking really Web3 technologies, whether it's blockchain, smart contracts, DAOs, or with an NFT metaverse big time, right? With an NFT type of component. I think Gary's tweet was 99%. And so we see the upside potential of all the above, but we also see a lot of people that need to start pumping the brakes a little bit and take a step back and slow down and start incorporating traditional common sense business tactics, start appreciating that even though it's a tap or a swipe away to purchase an NFT or to to drop an NFT, there are certain state and federal legal issues that apply to all the above. So it's an exciting time to be alive. It's a great time to be a lawyer because I can help a lot of my friends make good, well-thought-out decisions. But it's also scary, Mike, because we have a lot of people appearing on Twitter spaces and in our discords you know, with 15 minutes of Google research and the gift of Gab being able to come across as an expert. And so there's a lot of bad advice. There's a lot of uh, misinformation being shared in exchange for somebody looking for a short-term gain apart from a long-term positive result for the community. So it's a challenge, but it's fun. And that's why I wanted to come on today is hopefully share some ideas to keep everybody safe and sound moving forward in the Web3 space. You know, one of the things that I want to ask you that I didn't prepare to ask you, but it seems to be a natural question to ask is 
the blockchain and NFTs is a global phenomenon and the law is very much based on geography, right? Like, like federal and state. So I would imagine um, this gets complicated when you're dealing with international projects and so many of these projects cross all sorts of different countries and stuff like that. So I would imagine most of what we're going to talk about has to do with the United States. Is that correct? That's a good assumption. Okay. And also, Mike, this might be a good time. Just we're having a conversation, no legal, financial, or investment advice is being given. And what I want to do is answer your questions and share my thoughts on some of the different topics that come up. But you're right. We're talking about a global community. So we've got a combination of state laws, federal laws, we've got international laws, we've got IP intellectual property laws here in the in the United States versus international laws. We have jurisdiction and venue issues. If somebody doesn't do what they promise you they're going to do, what state, what country, what venue or location can you hold wrongdoers accountable for? On the flip side of the of the coin is if there's profits, if there's value, if it's an amazing business situation that happens, then where is that realized? What company are the gross profits realized in? How are they reported? Are there multiple tax venues? There's a lot on the table right now that we're all trying to figure out together. And I think that by taking your time and by using traditional legal principles, Mike, that we're using in the offline world, moving forward, for example, if you're doing business, NFTs, cryptocurrency, whatever it might be with a global community, using contracts, using written documents that specify venue and jurisdiction clauses within those documents in case there's a good faith misunderstanding between the parties, in case somebody intentionally does something wrong, where has everyone agreed in writing to adjudicate that claim or litigation to, to resolve the issue? And I think basic contract law applied into a Web3 decentralized world is a very smart, good first step for any business owner, small or large, coming into this space. Mitch, you are diving into this world. You're familiar with some of the challenges that you see. I mean, I would imagine you look at a lot of things out there and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people are doing some of these things. Like what are some of the biggest mistakes or challenges that you're seeing people do with these projects? Do you have any things that you've noticed off the top of your head that you seem to be common mistakes that people make? A couple things that not only jump out to me, but to friends of mine who are very seasoned and well-respected lawyers in the digital spaces. Okay. I'm talking about lawyers that are behind all the companies you see each and every day on your phone, tablet, laptop, or desktop in the Web3 space. Um, what we're seeing happening is that the lack of use of legal entities to do business in these spaces. If you're creating NFTs as an artist, you're a sole proprietor, you're creating NFTs to sell them in the virtual spaces. You know, we're encouraging our clients to do so as either a corporation or as a limited liability company for a multitude of reasons we can dive into later if you'd like. But, you know, you want to consult with an expert in your state, in your region, in your country to figure out what's the best legal entity for you, because there are all types of benefits with doing business as a legal entity. So, for example, that's the biggest area that we see business owners making a mistake is business as a legal entity. And then the other big issue, Mike, has to do with intellectual property. We see a lot of people's intellectual property, either in good faith or, you know, or with bad intent being used 
by third parties in the Web3 space, whether it's creating NFTs, whether it's uh, designing a metaverse virtual office space, whatever it may be, it's the lack of respect of other people's intellectual property is another hot topic right now. And it's very important that people understand why IP is such a valuable asset. How can you protect your IP? And how can you make sure you don't violate someone else's IP when creating your Web3 content? So those are the two areas, legal entities and intellectual property, Mike. And it's not a sexy topic to talk about. I get it. But it's the topic everyone's going to see more and more litigation surrounding because everyone's more comfortable now with what this Web3 space is. So that, those are the two things I would like people to pay attention to. Okay, well, we're going to dig in on these and a couple of other things. I want to start with legal entities. There's such a diversity of individuals creating, let's just stick with NFT projects because it's probably the one my audience is most familiar with. You've got creators, maybe they're artists or maybe they're musicians or maybe they're some sort of marketer or entrepreneur who has a creative idea and they go out and hire someone to create art. I guess the big question is, should these collections be separate legal entities? And if so, what are the different kinds of legal entities that we need to be considering? Because it's as if these are businesses, right? It sounds like we need to treat these projects like businesses, correct? Not just like a side project or a product we're launching. Absolutely. So in the real world, before Web3 and NFTs, a dentist came to us and said, listen, help us set up our dental practice the right way we create a corporation here in California for that dentist to use to run his, her, or their practice. We then set up an LLC. That LLC would purchase dental equipment, the chairs, the devices you see in these offices, and they would hold title to those devices. They would then lease those devices back to the corporation run by the dentist. The employees would be hired by another limited liability company or corporation, and there would be leasebacks to the main dental corporation. It's entities working together for protective liability reasons and to maximize tax options. Moving forward into the Web3 space, Mike, what we're encouraging our clients to do is to create the appropriate legal entity. So if I was an artist, for example, I would be an LLC, a limited liability company, or maybe a sub-S corporation here in California. For those of you not familiar with different corporate entities, a sub-S corporation allows you to be treated as a corporation, but only taxed once as an individual. What's important about both of these liabilities is if something happens in the business world where you're, you're faced with a claim or a lawsuit or just something unexpected happens, there's what's called the corporate veil. It's a legal wall between you, the business liability, and your personal assets. In other words, if something goes south in business, it's not gonna flow over to your personal bank account, your retirement plan, or the family pet being taken possession of on a writ of execution, okay? So we're recommending our clients set themselves up as a legal entity. When they do their first NFT drop, the prudent way of going about that is setting up another legal entity and having that legal entity handle NFT drop number one, okay? There are agreements between the original legal entity and NFT entity drop number one that provide for the rights, liabilities, and remedies between all the players. It might be the same people. It might be some investors involved in the first corporation. But you're doing all of these things, Mike, to separate any liabilities. And by the way, usually I'm seeing a lot of liabilities and NFT drops and liabilities with respect to NFT drop number one. You're separating those from your parent corporation. And if they do somehow manage to get back over to your parent corporation, that parent corporation is an additional 
corporate veil or protective wall between it and your personal assets. So with each NFT drop, what we're recommending is a separate limited liability company or corporation be set up to accommodate each one of those drops. I want you to think of that as the first drop is the equipment in a dental office. The second drop are the employees in a dental office. The third drop might be dental office number two in a completely different state. Okay. And so you want to use legal entities to kind of separate all of these things so that they work well together. You'll sleep better at night. You'll minimize taxes. You'll maximize profits at the end of the year. You said there's a lot of liabilities with NFTs and I'm sure some people are listening right now saying, man, that sounds like a lot of work. I'm already an S corp. Why do I need to create another one just for my NFT? Right? Like help explain a little bit more about why that might be wise there for the reasons I've already mentioned. The reason it's smart is when we're dealing with decentralized business plans and opportunities in a Web3 world, do you know who you're doing business with? If you're buying and selling and creating NFTs using a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, do you know who all the players are in your DAO? I was part of the constitutional DAO where we tried to purchase a, one of the 11 remaining copies of the U.S. Constitution, raised 41 million, I think, in two weeks. And what I noticed, Mike, behind the scenes is that there were other people controlling that discord. I was not in control of that DAO. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying there's more to the picture than what first meets the eye. And it's completely legal, I'm sure. But what I'm saying is, if you're doing these NFT drops, you want to be careful because if you don't have full control over everything that's happening in these drops, and by that, I mean, if you're having somebody, a third party, create your NFTs for you and doing the design, do you know if they've acquired IP rights, intellectual property rights in the design that they're putting into the NFTs provided to you? Do you know that? You need contracts and agreements to help protect you in case they inadvertently took an IP design and incorporated it into the NFT that was ultimately provided to you. You can protect yourself through agreements. You can protect yourself through that third-party entity that we talked about. NFT entity number one is the entity that's contracting with that third-party designer. The same approach applies, Mike, when you're deciding who's going to be hosting the NFTs, when you decide what unlockable benefits are going to be made available to purchasers of the NFT or active members in the community. There are so many moving parts in the new Web3 environment. And, and once again, I'm glad it's exciting. The glass half full. Having said that, there's the remaining portion of the glass that we're not really sure what's happening behind the scenes, right? And so you want to make sure if there's a bad actor, if something happens that you don't expect, if there's a consumer class action, if you've got a player on a major platform that's using insider information to buy and sell NFTs because he, she, or they know that it may be profiled on the homepage of that NFT platform next week, which will increase the value of that NFT. If you're directly or indirectly part of all the above, you want as many legal entities or later layers between you and that conduct so that you can, once again, minimize the downside and maximize the upside protection. Let's talk a little bit about tax implications here before we get into intellectual property. I would imagine 
it's got to be complicated when it comes to NFT drops, right? Because you're dealing with the initial mint and then you're dealing with these commissions that are coming in all the time. I mean, like, I don't know if you cover that. I know you do cover that because we agreed to talk about this a little bit, but what do we need to know about the tax side of it from your perspective? What everyone needs to know, especially those of you that your NFT and digital currency appreciated in value last year, and now this year we're in a completely different world, and we're now doing taxes based upon last year, everyone needs to make sure they've got a highly qualified accountant or CPA, Mike, that's familiar with digital assets in the Web3 world in order to assist them with making the best possible tax decisions possible. So that's number one. Number two, everyone needs to understand, and I've been on shows with tax experts in the Web3 space, every single touch, purchasing cryptocurrency with fiat, with US dollars, for example, that's potentially a taxable event. Using that cryptocurrency you just purchased to purchase an NFT through one of the popular platforms, that in and of itself may be a taxable event. Ultimately selling or uh, using that NFT as security for a third party transaction, that may be a taxable event. Every single step in the Web3 world may have a taxable consequence to it. So if you're taking advice from reputable professional experts who are holding your hand and helping you make these decisions before you do something so that you're making the right decisions, taking traditional tax approaches in mind, in other words, using entities and, and, and using tax deductions and tax credits, whatever it may be, to minimize the tax liability. All of these things come into play in this new Web3 space. 99.99% of the people that I'm involved with, the creators, the artists in the Web3 space right now aren't doing anything I just mentioned, Mike. You know, And I get it. This is new. But as the IRS gets up to speed on what's happening, as the DOJ, the Department of Justice gets up to speed on what's happening, we're seeing more and more cases and more lawsuits being filed. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's going to get worse. There's two things when it comes to taxes I want everybody to pay attention to. And I made a couple of notes. Number one, pay attention to your 1099s. Overstated 1099s are a big problem right now. And what I'm saying is, when you're buying and selling crypto, let's just say digital assets on one of the major platforms, what's happening is they're going to be sending you a 1099 as to what they show the purchase and sale of that digital asset is. And oftentimes it's not going to be accurate. It, they don't have a history of where you first purchased the digital currency, you then ultimately transferred over to the platform where you then subsequently purchase the NFT. The trail is much longer than what's being reported on these 1099s. So I think all creators, all business owners, pay attention to the 1099s that you receive. Go over them with your accountant or CPA. Number two, pay attention to US tax code 6050I. I don't think this goes into effect until 2024, but what it talks about is if you transfer value of $10,000 or more, to a third party, then you need to report it. And that would apply to digital currency, that would apply to cryptocurrency, that would apply to NFTs. And so pay attention to 
6050i, talk to your accountant or CPA about that because that's very important also. There's also what's called the gift tax, Mike, and that means I believe this year, and don't hold me to this, but my understanding this year, for example, is if I gift you an NFT or digital currency valued at $16,000 or more, I have to report that and I have to pay a gift tax on that transfer to you, on that gift to you. Once again, everyone, check with your accountant in your state, in your region or country, and, and determine exactly what that magic number is. But with good counseling right now, you can set up your transfers to minimize those negative implications and maximize your end of year profit. So these are just a couple of things I'd like everyone to pay attention to. I know we are, and I hope uh, your members do. Well, and it's such a big part of marketing right now. I, I mean, I just got back from NFT NYC, as you kind of mentioned earlier, and so many of these projects are holding in reserve NFTs that they're giving out as rewards or bounty, if you will, in exchange for certain kinds of actions. And you know, receiving them potentially could be a tax consequence as well, I would imagine, right? Because if there's some sort of exchange where you're doing something and you're getting paid, if you will, in a digital asset, then you also need to be aware that you might end up getting a 1099 from them, you know, and you might be like, whoa, I didn't realize that this thing that I got is actually something I have to report on my taxes. What I would love to talk about is the intellectual property side of this, because there's so many crazy things going on in the intellectual property world. First of all, define intellectual property so people understand what that means to our audience. And then what do we need to understand about this when it comes to doing things like NFT projects? And maybe the fair use doctrine also, because that's one of the big issues I, I see here, Mike. So intellectual property is simply if you create content, if you create original content, then you have a copyright on that content and you have the right to decide who gets to use that content whether it's a, a piece of art, whether it's a, a software algorithm, whether it's a particular code embedded in a smart contract that, that works with the Web3 and NFT space. So that's what intellectual property is. It's something that belongs to you, to the creator, to the human being who creates that content. And the challenge we see, Mike, is people using other people's intellectual property say it's a photo, a video, a song, a design in their Web3 workflow. So whether it's in an NFT, whether it's in the design of a, of a metaverse office, conference room, or conference space, and it's a big no-no. It's a big challenge right now. And so the biggest issue I hear, or the largest, let me just say the biggest area of confusion that I hear is called the fair use doctrine. People say, well, I'm not using that much of the song. I'm just using a piece of the picture. Nobody's going to know that I'm using this image in what I'm doing. It's fair use. I, I saw it on the internet, so it's there for everyone to fairly use. And that's not what the fair use doctrine's all about, Mike. And so people need to really wrap their head around the fair use doctrine. I made a couple of notes. Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, just quickly. It's codified everyone under 11, under 17 USC, section 107. That defines the fair use doctrine, okay? And the fair use is a doctrine in the United States that permits limited use of copyrighted material without having to first acquire permission from the creator or owner or the person with ownership rights to that material. Now, this is what everybody needs to pay attention to, and that's why I printed it out, because I want to make sure I'm concise and accurate on this. The fair use doctrine is used and revolves around purposes of use when it comes to criticism, 
comment, news reporting, teaching, including creating multiple copies for a classroom, for example, scholarship or research. Okay. And so if you're using somebody else's content without their permission for anything other than what I just mentioned, and here's where I'm going with this commercial purposes for sales of your products or services, if that's you, then there's a pretty good chance you may be violating someone's intellectual property rights and your use of these items does not fall under the fair use doctrine. There's another big issue, Mike, which everyone seems to overlook. I'm a litigating attorney. That's what I do. I love trying cases. I, I, I'm more excited today after 35 years of trying cases than I was when I started back on day one. And you're not going to find many lawyers that will say that after 10 years of practice, but I just love litigating cases. The fair use doctrine is what's called an affirmative defense. It doesn't even come up until after you've been sued or after your company has been sued, you've been served with a summons and complaint, you have to file an answer. And in that answer is an affirmative defense of fair use. You have to prove that you have fair use rights while you're in the middle of litigation, okay? Hiring a lawyer, spending years of your time proving that you did nothing wrong. So what we tell our clients is if you didn't create the content, if you didn't acquire written permission from the content creator, the owner, or appropriate licensing rights from the appropriate, you know, third-party licensee agency to use that content, then don't use it. Okay, because what I've noticed in the fair use doctrine being applied as an affirmative defense is generally speaking, the best lawyer wins in court. It's a gray area. And so I don't want to see our clients, I don't want to see mutual friends of ours in the community thinking that it's fair use, so they're going to use something, under, not understanding the fact that it's an affirmative defense. It doesn't come up until after you've been sued, served with a lawsuit. And generally, if you don't have a good lawyer representing you, even if it is fair use, you may not prevail in a court of law. So it's an interesting area that I would like everyone to spend more time getting up to speed on. Wikipedia has a great summary on the fair use doctrine. Mike, and that's another big area moving forward people need to pay attention to. Well, I want to talk about this a little bit because, first of all, fair use in the worlds of NFT is probably not going to fly because in, in the world of NFTs, this is generally a for-profit thing that you're creating for commercial intent. So I don't think anybody should probably try to claim that. And where it gets a little fuzzy is you go out and you hire an artist or you hire an illustrator or you hire a design agency you got to protect yourselves from them making these mistakes, right? Because so many of these guys use these third-party services where there's like existing drawings of little elements. Like for example, we had a key inside of an NFT that we were going to launch, but we looked at the terms of the licensing for it and it said it could not be used for NFTs. Therefore, we didn't use it, right? Because last thing you want to do is issue an NFT and realize the art needs to change, right? So I would imagine this gets a little complicated when you're talking about going out and hiring third-party illustrators and designers, right? What do we need to be thinking about there? What you and I need to be thinking about is the company that we formed that then went out and started this third-party LLC for NFT drop number one. Those officers and directors, maybe it's us wearing a different hat. When we go out, reach out to these third-party designers that we confirm in a written document that they have acquired any and all IP rights, or it's an original piece of content, and they are transferring all IP rights to our 
third-party NFT limited liability company number one to use those rights any way we want in exchange for compensation. Okay, so we're kind of removing ourselves from this potential snake pit of problems and documenting everyone's position in writing. That's the first thing, okay? The second thing is when we're dealing with platforms, and and you mentioned this, and licensing agreements, study the TOS agreement, study the terms of service agreement, or have, have your lawyer look at this and understand exactly what your rights and remedies are if, in fact, you're using a particular hosting plan for your NFT project, which involves third-party creators, and something goes wrong. What are your rights? What are your remedies? Where's the venue? Where can people be held accountable for? What I'd like to see, Mike, is none of that happen. I'd like everyone to just enjoy the process and have fun building out their Web3 brands. But, you know, as you brought up, this is a real problem. And so you protect yourself with written agreements when dealing with third parties. Okay. Uh, What a lot of people don't realize, Mike, is when you purchase an NFT, 99 times out of 100, you're not also acquiring the IP rights behind that NFT. So if that's important to you, make sure you look at all of the written documentation behind the purchase of your NFT so that you can ascertain whether or not you're also acquiring limited or full IP rights so that you can do what you want with that NFT moving forward. You know, a lot of interesting issues here in the law. I see AI, I see as the Web3 platforms develop, Mike, I see things becoming a little bit more clear down the road. But where you and I are sitting right now today and probably for the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of dust in the air until everyone's rights and remedies settle to the ground as to what we can and can't do. And that's why a lot of, I think, really good lawyers are saying, listen, let's see what works in the real world. Let's apply this to our digital business transactions, whether it's Web 3 or Web 2. And let's be careful. Let's pump the brakes. Let's make sure we know who we're dealing with, what we're using in our content creation, and uh, backing everything up with contracts and agreements. The biggest challenge with NFTs right now, Mike, in addition to what we've already talked about, does revolve around security law, okay? Is your NFT a security? Are the drops that we're seeing participating in, building, promising, having fun with, are we actually violating SEC, Security and Exchange Commission, rules and regulations or not? What do we need to look at? What are things that we need to pay attention to uh, when it comes to NFTs and security law. So I see that as being an, a, another area that's developing, Mike, that people need to pay attention to and then protect themselves using legal entities if you're playing in the gray area and you're not really sure or your lawyer or CPA is not sure what type of NFT animal you're actually dealing with, then you want to make sure you proceed slowly and carefully or you pivot and go a completely different way that's a little more safe a little more secure and offers great upside potential without the downside potential too. I'm glad you brought up the security thing because when we say security, we really mean, is it like, maybe you should explain what that is for people that maybe don't understand what it means to be a security. Like just simply translate that. What does that mean? Cause they might not understand what that means. So what I'm talking about for purposes of this conversation, Mike, is a security is a, is an instrument. 
it's a financial instrument that's being used. Like a stock. Like a stock, for example, like an investment that falls under the Security and Exchange Commission. There are rules and regulations that apply when you're selling stocks, when you're transacting in securities. And that goes all the way back to the 1930s with the Security and Exchange Commission. And guess what? We don't have that in the Web3 digital currency or NFT spaces right now. So what we're doing right now, Mike, is we're reminding our clients and we're letting our clients know about the Howey case. The Howey case goes all the way back to 1946. And that was a defining Supreme Court case that basically laid out four factors we need to look at to determine whether or not a transaction may be deemed a security under the SEC. If so, that's fine. You simply have to register appropriately with the SEC. You have to do the paperwork. You have to follow the rules and regulations. What I'm seeing in the Web3 space right now, like you said earlier, it's kind of the wild, wild west, especially with large NFT drops. And so when I go through these four steps with you right now, I want everyone to think to themselves, as I go through each of the four steps, does this sound like an NFT drop that you've read about online? Maybe an NFT drop that you're a part of, you're an investor in, right? These are like real issues that people need to pay attention to. So the four steps in the Howey test are as follows. Number one, is there an investment in money? So when looking at NFTs or we're looking at buying and selling digital currency, is there an investment of money that's being asked of you or that you're asking other people to be a part of, to become part of your community, part of your project? Number two, in a common enterprise, okay? Is this a common NFT drop? Does it have a name? Does it have a community? Does it have its own Discord, right? Number three, is there an expectation of profit? Well, most of the business people I'm around, we're not in business to lose money. And I think most of the projects we see online are are there to help the community, to do good in society. But usually there's also a component of being profit-oriented. So take that into consideration. Number four is the profit expected to be derived by the efforts of a promoter or third party. Is there somebody behind this particular project, someone we look up to, someone we respect? Or is it someone who we don't know because the project's being pushed by a DAO? And so we don't really know who's behind the project. Those are the four factors that the Howey Court asked us to look at, and I'll leave it up to everyone listening to this interview to decide whether or not you think your NFT project that your friends involved with falls within those four guidelines. I will tell everybody when it comes to fractionalized NFTs, the elements of the Howey test do seem to be more apparent. So the four steps I just went through, if you're a single artist putting your artwork in a virtual gallery on the metaverse, there's a fairly good chance that those four elements don't apply to you. Check with a lawyer, independently ascertain whether or not that's the case. Having said that, when it comes to fractionalized NFTs, all of these things are happening as a community in exchange for somewhere down the line, there's a rate of return. There's some type of consideration or benefit. I think what we're seeing, and with some of the legal scholars that are a lot smarter than I am when it comes to these types of legal issues in this space. What they're reminding me of is, Mitch, the fractionalized NFTs are are probably the problem area more so than everything else. And so pay attention to fractionalized NFTs and these issues moving forward, Mike, because as we see each and every day, I think the last two or three days on my Twitter feed, 
I actually shared three or four different new cases that have been filed, you know, because of these types of SEC violations or other criminal wrongdoing, traditional white collar crime statutes being applied in the Web3 space. I'm sharing this information because number one, I find it interesting, but I also feel like people can read about these cases and when they see the story that's being told, I think it helps them understand and appreciate moving forward what they need to pay attention to to do business the right way, to do their due diligence, and frankly, to have fun in this space and create a dynasty for their families and their friends, as opposed to a legal nightmare that's just going to turn your world upside down. So look at the Howie test, get a feel for these four factors, and I think you'll be further along than anybody else. I want to ask you about DAO, as you mentioned, decentralized autonomous organizations a couple of times. I'm seeing a lot of people trying to organize a DAO to try to not make it be a security. I'm curious what your thoughts are on DAOs. It seems to be a very fuzzy area right now. It really is. So it's a form over substance, a substance over form type of analogy, right? It doesn't matter what you call something. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So with the challenge with DAOs and what's interesting about them is For example, the U.S. Constitution, 41 million in two weeks. It allowed a global community to come together just like that and participate in a live auction. And that was fun. I actually watched the live auction on YouTube. The downside with DAOs right now is they're untested in a court of law. Wyoming has a couple of statutes where they're treating DAOs almost like a limited liability company. I think they actually use that term. But for all the other states, when clients come to us, they want to create a DAO to do X, Y, Z right, to create a company to sell products or services or to support an NFT drop. What we talk to them about is established legal entities right now are the way to go. They're tested in a court of law. Here in California, we actually have the California Corporations Code, which lays out all the rights and remedies and obligations and duties of everybody involved in corporation uh, law. And you know what you're getting yourself into. We have not litigated a case in front of a judge or a jury where here's the Dow. Here's the players. Here's the issue. Your Honor, tell us what happens next with this decentralized legal entity that's the center of this lawsuit. We don't know what a judge or a jury is going to do. We don't know what state and federal legislatures are going to do when it comes to tax ramifications with DAOs. So it's a new area. What we're seeing happen is for those organizations that do want to create a DAO, they want to get together and do something good for the community. What they're doing is they're creating a legal entity first. And then they're wrapping that limited liability company or that corporation around the DAO and then moving forward with the DAO project. So the LLC or the corporation is controlling what's within the DAO. That DAO project's doing its own thing. And that's where we're seeing, I think, the better legal rationale happening in real time. I shared three articles in my Discord, Mike, that dive into... 20 or 30 different ways you can layer DAOs with different legal entities, depending on where you're located in the United States and around the world. The other reason you're doing this is twofold. Number one, you're also minimizing tax consequences, which a lot of people don't think about when it comes to DAOs. If there's a profit, if there's an issue, who's responsible, who pays the taxes? Number two, When it comes to investors, if you're a startup, if you're an entrepreneur, you're rolling out a new product or service, and you think you're going to do this as a DAO, for example, you're not going to get a venture capitalist. You're not going to get an investor to put a lot of money into your project if they don't know who's in control, 
if they don't know who's behind this project, if they don't know that there are safety valves set up to keep the wrong people from coming into that DAO, as we all see on television and on the internet each day, it only takes one bad actor to bring down a company one bad brand ambassador to completely turn a product upside down. So if you're a venture capitalist looking for companies to invest in, you want to invest in companies where they've got a clear business plan. You know who all the players are. You know what the philosophy is. You know the brains behind the idea as opposed to this decentralized concept like who in the world's calling the shots in this particular type of business opportunity. They're going to go with the safe options as opposed to the untested options moving forward. So we're going to see them progress. They're going to become more mature. They're going to be codified in the different states, Mike, but it's going to take a few years, I think, before the law catches up with the idea behind DAOs. Mitch Jackson, this has been absolutely fascinating. If people want to reach out to you on the socials or on your websites or wherever, where do you want to send them? Where's the best place to get in touch with Mitch Jackson? Well, Mike, it's great being here. Thank you for having me on. I think the easiest place is just avoid my law firm website. Nobody wants to go to lawyer websites. Just go over to MitchJackson.com. That's my blog. That's where I'm posting this type of content each and every day. And Mike, if your community members have a topic that they're struggling with in the Web3 space, I love writing, doing videos, doing social audios about these topics. Bring it to Mike's attention. Reach out to me at MitchJackson.com. I'll do a post, I'll explain it, and uh, hopefully as a community, we'll watch out for each other, we'll move forward, and we'll maximize all the benefits that I think are coming down the line in the Web3 space, Mike. And I'm super excited about our futures, I'm super excited about what's going to be happening moving forward in five to ten years when you layer everything we talked about with AI in the metaverse. Ah. I'll tell you what, I wish I was 20 years younger because it's going to be a fun ride. And if they want to get the Metaverse handbook, where's the best place to get that? Once again, over at MitchJackson.com. It should be dropping uh, hopefully before this episode comes out, but the end of June, early July. Sweet. Mitch, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom and answering all my questions. We're better because of it. I appreciate you. Thanks for all you do to the community, Mike. Hey, if you missed anything, and we did cover a lot, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash c 28. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us and let your friends know about this show. I'm at Stelzner on Instagram, at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Crypto Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Crypto Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Crypto Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.